Our scripture for today will be in Ephesians 3, verses 14. I'm going to read to verse 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, and high, and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout the generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we come before you, praying that you would illuminate your word, that you would speak to us this morning. May I decrease as you increase. Would you speak to me today? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. I hope you had a great Christmas week. I know I did. And uh, as, as we've been singing Christmas songs, O Little Town of Bethlehem, I'm reminded of my time in Israel. I spent about three years ago. My wife and I were able to travel and experience the Holy Land. And if you've been to the Holy Land, it's one of those experiences, at least it was for me, that I would say it was transformative. And if I try to explain how it was transformative. I tried to express my experience in Bethlehem or my experience um, in the Sea of Galilee or, or when we were um, at the Garden of Gethsemane. Or if I could go on and on and on about all these amazing experiences. It really wouldn't do it justice because I believe that kind of experience has to be, in fact, experienced. You can read about it. You can hear about it. You can learn about it. But there's a difference in knowing and experiencing This prayer that Paul is praying to the Ephesians, I believe the message of it is that you should expect and seek profound, life-changing spiritual experiences of the love and joy of God. And in the text, we're going to see why we need it, why we need these experiences of love, what it is, what does it look like, and how we should receive it. So let's begin first in why We need it. Keep in mind, this is a prayer to Christians. Paul is preaching to those who are already believers. He's written this letter to the Ephesians, uh, to a lot of churches in a particular region of Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. When you realize that, there are a number of puzzles that confront us in this prayer. For example, in verse 16, Paul says he prays that Christ would dwell in their hearts. Except in chapter 2, he writes that Christ is already indwelling in them for everyone who believes. In verse 18 and 19, he prays that they would know the love of Christ, and yet there are plenty of places in the Bible, 1 John 3 or 4, that would suggest you're not a Christian if you don't know the love of Christ. And lastly, he's praying that all Christians be filled with the fullness of knowing and loving God, and even that, in chapter 1, he says, all Christians are united to Christ by faith and are filled with the fullness of God. Why is Paul fervently praying for Christian friends to get what they already have? 
I believe it's one thing to trust and love, trust the love of Christ, and it's another to experience the love of Christ in your inner being. The inner being meaning your heart of hearts, the very center of our consciousness, the very center of our identity and who we are. It's one thing to know the love of Christ, but it's another to be transformed by it, to experience it. To give you an example, it would be like inheriting a large sum of money and that sum of money being put into an account. But you're not able to necessarily access that account 24-7. And let's say there comes a time when you are poor and don't have money and need money to eat or to sustain yourself. But the ATMs are closed, the banks closed, and you aren't able to access that money. There it is, the money is yours but you can't access it. It doesn't change your circumstances. It doesn't change the way in which you live. So the fact that Paul is fervently praying for Christians to to have these things in which they already have tells us two things. It tells us this first. What he's actually saying is that this is an ordinary situation for most of us. We are not always affected by what we know to be true. An example of this uh, is from David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor in Britain, and when he was counseling discouraged Christians who were unhappy, who were anxious, who were struggling, at some point he would surprise them by asking them this question. He would say, are you really a Christian? And the person would be taken aback and often would say, well, I'm trying. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones would respond by saying, you've shown me that you don't really know the first principle of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is not somebody who is saved by their works not saved by their performance, but being a Christian is standing on what Christ has already done for you. You either stand in Christ's obedience for you or you don't, but it's not about trying. And if the person says, oh yeah, I knew that, then that would be one thing. If the person instead says, oh, I didn't know that, then perhaps I've never truly heard the gospel. Lloyd-Jones would say, if the person says, oh yeah, I knew that, then it's likely that that love and joy has not taken root in their inner being. He says perhaps that that love is not spiritually operative in their life. In other words, the unbelievable truth of being absolutely known, absolutely loved and accepted by the Father because of the work of the Son isn't shaping that person's emotions or their experience. That can be an ordinary situation for many of us. Paul is writing to Christians in this, in this prayer. And many of us may have known the love of God. We've heard it a million times. We know that God loves us, but we haven't truly experienced it. The second is this. Paul says that he is bowing a knee when he prays. That is a posture that represents a heightened emotion. It's not a typical posture. Normally, in the, in the scriptures, we see people standing as they pray. When you bow a knee, that is very significant. People did, did bow the knee, but it meant that there is an intense emotion behind the prayer. So when Paul says, I bow a knee, that you get this. Understand, these people are probably experiencing hardship, illness, disease, Army, the fear of armies, fear of danger. You can go, I can go on and on and on about what they were probably experiencing. And yet Paul bows a knee to says, this is what's most important. This is the thing that matters. Do you see the need for you to experience the love of Christ in your inner being? And know that you may know these things. 
Paul's point is that for so many of us, we may think we know it, but we don't. <clears throat> this is why we need it. And I want to take a second to contrast this with Psalm 88. Now, I recently preached a sermon on Psalm 88, and I'm not, I don't have time to go into it too much, but essentially the message of Psalm 88 is that if you're a believer, you can do everything right in your life and yet still experience times of spiritual dryness or darkness where God doesn't feel real, perhaps he feels absent, and there can be inner turmoil even if you know that God loves you. You can live faithfully toward God without feeling his presence. And that perhaps we should be expecting that there are going to be times of the spiritual dryness. Because it is only times where God feels absent that you can learn certain things about the human heart. And there are times where we are forced to rely on the grace of God. This is why we sing songs like, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Because all of us are prone to walk away. We are prone to drift away. We are prone to enter into these seasons where it appears that God is silent. We know this because we see it all throughout the scriptures where there are seasons where people have experienced great turmoil. We see it in, in the Psalms when David is constantly wrestling with, with inner pain and, and, and difficulties. I think we have to learn to experience and expect both. Times of spiritual dryness, but also times where God's love is fully experienced and we experience the great joy of knowing Christ. And it is my experience that churches tend to err one side or the other. They emphasize the truth in word and focus on obedience, but get a little nervous about the spiritual. These churches tend to not encourage people to experience God's love because that's not what's important. And then you have the other side of the spectrum where churches tend to emphasize the spirit and are big on experience. You have to experience the power and anointing of God, but often neglect to prepare people that there may be seasons of spiritual dryness. My hope is that we can become a church community that can be biblical enough to where we can experience and expect both. So what is this experience? Paul makes three petitions in his prayer. The first is this. In verse 16, I pray out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Inner being is a synonym for the heart, Right In the Bible, we see the heart is the basic commitments, the things that you are passionate about, things you most hope in, you place your happiness and joy in. The heart affects the mind, the will, and the emotions. It dictates what feelings move you and what actions you will take. And the first petition that Paul makes is that it would be empowered, that it would strengthen you. The second is this, to grasp and to know. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love surpasses knowledge. In Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, he uses this illustration. He says, in every marriage at some point, every couple may say, I know we are married, but I don't feel married. I don't even doubt your love for me, but I don't feel your love for me. Because you're not expressing your love to me like you once did. I know I'm loved, but I don't feel loved. I can relate to that. Sometimes in my relationship with God, I know how much God loves me, but I don't always feel that experience. 
And he is praying that you would not just understand the concept of Christ's love, but that you were going to experience the actuality of Christ's love, that it is real and tangible. This is the inner experience in which Christ becomes so real to you, it's as if he is another person in your life, maybe even more of a reality than the people in your life. And his love and approval is so real, so precious, so incredible that it it begins to be more important than your parents' love, more important than your children's love, more important than money or success or fame or power or influence or all the things that capture our hearts and our attention. And all of a sudden, it is God's love that reigns supreme in our hearts. Because in that moment, those things become less important. And you're actually experiencing the greatest love in your inner being. And that experience can be a high. It can be something really um, exciting and great that you'll never forget it. It can also be a mild, gentle whisper into your soul. And this love, it may come and go. As, As we saw in Psalm 88, in that moment, he was not experiencing God's love. We may not experience it every day. Let me give you some examples because I want to take this out of the theoretical and and look at some specific examples where God's love became a reality. These are four examples of four very different people. Uh, Dwight Moody was an evangelical 19th century minister. George Whitfield was a British Anglican. Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher from the 16th century. And Teresa of Avila was a Roman Catholic nun in the 16th century. And I want you to hear about their experiences. These are experiences that they wrote about in their journals or various other places. First, Dwight Moody was praying for more of God on the streets of New York City in the late 1850s. And suddenly God came down in a way that he says, I have never forgotten and began to experience so much love in my heart that I had to ask him to stop. Imagine experiencing God's love so intensely that you had to ask him to stop. George Whitfield, uh, when you read his journals, which were, were essentially diaries that he eventually made public, he often found that when he would pray at night, he would experience the love of God flow into his heart with such intensity that he couldn't sleep. And eventually he would say to God, please stop, I, got, I have got to get some rest. When Blaise Pascal died, the great philosopher, one of the greatest minds of the 16th century, They found sewed into the line of his coat a journal entry about a two-hour experience from 12 a.m. to 2 a.m. in 1654 when he explains that he experienced the love of God like a fire. And he never again doubted the reality of God or his assurance of his salvation. And he describes this in such incredible detail and he's so much that he sewed it into the hem of his coat so that it would always be close to his heart. This was a transformative, life-changing experience for him. And lastly, and I love this, listen to the language that Teresa of Avila uses to describe an encounter she had in one of her prayers. This prayer is a glorious foolishness, she writes, a heavenly madness. It had been as though I was bewildered and inebriated by in this love. The soul would desire to cry out praises and it is beside itself. It cannot bear so much joy. It would want to be all the tongues so as to praise the Lord. Here we have four very different people, different genders, different uh, faith backgrounds, um, different temperaments, different cultures, but the same God who longs for you to experience his love here and now. 
Now there's a third petition. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now this seems a bit overwhelming and maybe a little bit abstract, but in the New Testament, the fullness of God almost always means a pattern of life. And here's how you know it's not just an emotional experience. Um, It changes the way how you live your life. When you have an encounter with God, when you have an encounter with the living God, it doesn't just affect your emotions, but it changes the way in which you live. I've I've preached sermons before, and I've sensed um, high school students experience emotions. And sometimes those are just emotions. Sometimes we, we, we have feelings, and that doesn't necessarily mean God is moving. But I've also seen moments where people have had, experienced great emotion, and I've seen their lives change. I've seen a reorientation in which they focus and live their life. And that's how we know that, in fact, God is moving. Our mission here at Eastminster is to encourage people to experience the fullness of knowing, loving, and becoming like Jesus. Experiencing the fullness, this is what Paul talks about, right? Experiencing the fullness changes us gradually but permanently. And experiencing the, experiencing the fullness, it changes our mind, our will, and our emotions. So how do we receive it? First, we seek God in prayer. When Paul gets to this, he makes it clear that it's not enough to know, but it needs to be brought to the center of our being. Um, Hudson Taylor was a, a great 19th century missionary to China. And after he died, he had a bookmark in his Bible. And on that, on that bookmark, there was, a, there was a line that said, Lord Jesus, make myself to thee a living, bright reality. Just a little prayer that he would pray every single day. It was a reminder that Christ was present and that his love was there. And I think for many of us, we need to pray every single day as a reminder that Christ is in fact present in here and moving in our midst. Ravi Zacharias said in one of his sermons, a sense of God's absence is a sign of his presence. And that really struck me. I didn't quite understand what he meant by that. What he meant was is to long after God's presence is a sign that you are not capable of doing it on your own. If in your heart you say, I want this, I desire this, but feel as if you don't have it, I want you to be comforted by this reality. Know that by the fact that you desire it, that says something about the posture of your heart. The fact that you are longing, the fact that you are seeking after it means that Jesus is near. It means that he's close. So don't stop seeking him. If the posture of your heart is, Lord, I want you more, and Christ's presence is near. Number one, seek after him in prayer. Number two, wrestle. The word grasp that Paul uses is a weird word in the Greek. It's a, it's a word that means to overtake someone, wrestle them to the ground, and rob them. Or if it's used in a corporate setting, to take a city, overtake a city, uh, sack and plunder it, and take its wealth. So what is Paul saying? Uh, commentator Dr. Craig Keener suggests that he's not saying we are to wrestle and steal from God himself, but rather wrestle and rob the truths and doctrines of God. So if the text says Jesus loves you, we need to wrestle with the truth of this reality. Take Psalm 49, for example. Right? I don't know if if there's a greater love than a mother for their for their child. There's something powerful, there's a mysterious quality about it. It's really incredible. 
And yet Psalm 49 says God's love for you is infinitely more. You ever thought about that? You ever meditated on that? We need to wrestle with what the implications of that is. Because I think if we really were to meditate on that and understand that, that would catch fire in our hearts. And what Paul is talking about, it's not just cerebral and it's not just mystical. It's a fusion of the mind and the heart. So we chase after it, we seek after it, we wrestle with it. And I think we have to ask the question, so what do you do when your mind is there but your heart isn't? What do you do when you understand the gospel, you know that God loves you, but your heart just isn't there? What do you do when you know what sin is? You know what's right or wrong, your mind knows, but your heart doesn't want to change. What do you do when there's a gap between your head and your heart? Throughout the scriptures, there's this phrase, is this phrase that says, wait on the Lord. And we see it repeated over and over again. Psalm 142, 5, David's wrestling. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? And then he says, put your hope in God. Right, so he's wrestling, he's depressed, he's tired, he's, he feels like God is distant, but he knows. Put your hope in God. There's a gap between his head and his heart. He knows what he's supposed to do, but he's wrestling. Some of you want to worship God. You want to pray. You want to have a vibrant prayer life, but you don't feel like you can. There's a gap. You may see beautiful hymns in your hymn book or on the screen, or you sing songs, but you don't really, you don't really connect. You can sing, but you're not really worshiping. So how do you wait on the Lord if this is you? If you're walking through a season of spiritual dryness, how do we wait on the Lord? My encouragement to you is to continue to wait in obedience one day at a time, one step at a time, positioning yourself under the waterfall of grace that God offers to all of us, asking for God to break your heart, asking for God to reveal himself to you, to restore the the joy of your salvation, and ask him to make Jesus your treasure. And for those of you who are in that season, who are in a season of spiritual dryness, don't give up. Don't stop seeking him. Did you know that God is the perfect father? I'm an imperfect father. I can give you a million examples. One of those is that I love to give my son whatever he wants, right? If we're at the grocery store and he wants a cookie, I have a really hard time not buying him the cookie, right? Because I know it'll make him happy then and there. My uh, grandma made amazing Christmas cookies for our kids, and my son wants them all the time, right? He could have eaten the whole, the whole plate of them if I let him, and I almost did. God is a perfect father. He knows what we need before we ask. Another way in which I'm imperfect is that my son will ask me questions over and over and over again. He'll say, Daddy, 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 will you please do this? Daddy, 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 and I'll tell him no, and he'll continue to ask over and over and over again. And in my imperfection, I will get frustrated or I'll, I'll, get, I'll get annoyed. And here's where God is a perfect father. In the Psalms, we see that God delights when we petition him. He delights when we come to him over and over and over. He never gets tired of our questions. He never gets tired of us asking him for things. He never gets tired of us. He knows what we need 
and he never grows tired, but he delights in it. Perhaps you've been asking God for something for a long time. Maybe there's a family member or a friend who's far from God and you've been praying that God would reveal himself to to that person. Maybe a loved one is sick. They've been sick for a long time and you've prayed for healing, but God has been silent and hasn't healed. Maybe you've been in a season of financial distress and there's been a lot of anxiety in the home and you've been praying for deliverance that God would help you get out of a difficult situation. Maybe you're in a broken marriage or a broken relationship that seems like no matter what you try, things just continue to get worse and you've prayed and you've prayed, but nothing seems to get better. My encouragement to you today is to not give up. Don't stop petitioning God. Don't stop asking him. Do not stop praying, but continue in faithfulness and asking God for what it is you desire. There's this beautiful illustration That's a story about a man um, who God comes to and asks a question of him. And he says to the man, what I would like you to do is to wake up every single morning, go into your backyard, and there's this large boulder. And I want you to go up to this boulder, this, this giant rock, and I want you to push this rock. Would you do this for me? The man was a faithful man, and he said, yes, I, I will absolutely do that for you, anything for you. So the next day, the man gets up bright and early, break of dawn, goes into the backyard, and he sees this large rock. And he goes up to the rock, and he pushes the rock with all of his strength. And he pushes for hours and hours. And this continued for, for many days, day after day, week after week. He would get up early. He was faithful. He would go, and he would push on this rock. Weeks went by. Months went by. Years went by. And then one day... It wasn't his best day. He was frustrated. He got up really early. It was raining outside. He was not feeling well, but he, he was faithful and he continued to push the rock. But all of a sudden he started to get frustrated. And in a moment of frustration, he turned to the heavens and he yelled out to God, God, I have been pushing this rock for so long and it hasn't moved. And God responds to the man. He said, I never asked you to move that rock. I simply asked you to push. When the time is right, I will move the rock. But in the meantime, you have persevered. You are strong. You are physically stronger than when you began. See, I'm doing something that even you couldn't see. You've grown in your perseverance, in your will, and your strength. And now I can use you for far greater things. For many of you, you may have a rock in your life, something in your life that you've been asking God for a long time. My encouragement for you is to not give up. Believe God is doing something in you that maybe you can't see yet. So do not give up. Perhaps you're walking in a season of spiritual dryness. Don't give up. Don't stop seeking God. I believe, like Paul, as he writes to the church uh, in, in the book of Galatians, he says, do not grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Do not give up. Do not grow weary in doing good. Friends, God loves you more than you can imagine, and he's inviting you to experience this love in your inner being. It is my prayer that you would experience it and be transformed. Seek after him in prayer, wrestle with it, and do not give up asking him to do extraordinary things. Let's pray. Father, I pray for those in this room who have been walking in the season of spiritual dryness. I pray for a renewal 
as we enter into a new year, that there would be a fresh anointing of your spirit upon our people, that you would work in our hearts in ways that we were not expecting, in ways that we did not imagine, and that we would continue to pursue you because you've already pursued us. Spirit, we ask that you would do only what you can do. It's for your perfect name we pray. Amen.